I'm going to take a poll this morning, ask you a question. How many of you have lived through a war before? Anyone here? Okay, a few of you. Here's another question. How many of you maybe have actually lived in a war zone before? Anyone? I didn't think so. Uh, For us here in this day and age in Canada, most of us have not truly lived through a physical war on earth before. To some extent, yes. Okay, you might have been tempted to answer, we've all lived through wars taking place, or seeing wars take place around us, in Afghanistan or Iraq, Kuwait, Kosovo, to some extent the abstract war on terror we've seen. If you're a bit older, you may remember the wars vividly in Vietnam or Korea. Only a handful would remember the last time Canada was heavily invested in a war in World War II in the 1940s. Some of you, on the other hand, may have experienced war in another country where you grew up or you visited, or maybe you've been in the military and so you've seen war firsthand. Whether or not you've experienced war before, I want you to think about something for a minute. I want you to think about alliances in war. You know what I mean? When one nation decides to team up with another nation for whatever reason, maybe they feel they're stronger together or they have mutual interests at stake in this war, so they team up to fight together. As a kid, I loved both geography and history. And so in my history books, you can imagine maps of wars, they fascinated me. Seeing how alliances shaped different wars, especially in World War I and II, was especially fascinating to me. I grew up in the States, as some of you know, so it seemed looking at these maps that Germany was always the enemy, right? Along with maybe Italy or Japan. It's, on the other hand, Great Britain or France always seemed to be our allies, our friends in war. Russia seemed to flip-flop a lot back and forth. And then there was always Switzerland. (laughs) What can be said about Switzerland? That little oasis of peace and neutrality (laughs) in the middle of it. I want you to imagine, though, this morning, that you live in a time of war, or even in a war zone itself, where everything around you is affected by that war, your safety, your health, your security, your life may be at stake, or the lives of those you love around you. If you fight in this war, okay, imagine you're a soldier, you have to choose to fight for one side or the other. You can't just stay on the sidelines. And if your country is involved in this war, whomever they make alliances with is crucial. Those decisions really can determine the outcome of the war, both for you and your country, in victory or defeat or even in the long-term lasting effects of the war itself. If you choose the right allies, you'll be victorious. If you choose to fight on the right side, you'll also likely suffer less losses, or maybe even gain a favorable outcome in the war. Conversely, whomever you choose to fight against is also very important. Choose the wrong side, and you may lose your freedom or your land, even your life. It's a big decision. In the passage we're in today in God's Word, God's Word, I believe, is going to tell us that we actually 
are in a war. When I asked this morning, have you lived through a war, all of you could have raised your hands. Did you know that? Did you know that we, you, are physically, that you personally are at war today? Not a physical war with weapons or armies or camouflage or strategy like that. But we are all involved in a spiritual war in our lives. Every single day we're involved in this war. Really, we're involved in several different wars that go on in our lives at the same time. Sometimes we're at war with others around us. We're at war inside of us. With ourselves. We're at, and worst, we're at war with God. That's what we're going to see in God's Word today. We can't just be an innocent bystander in this war. We have to choose sides. And we have to be ultra careful about what side we choose in this war or whom we choose to make alliances with because it can cost us our spiritual security, our spiritual safety, even our souls. It's a very important decision. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, page 1012 in your pew Bibles. After a few weeks off for Holy Week and Easter and then a guest speaker last week, we're returning to the book of James this morning. And it's been a few weeks, so I figured I'd give you just a little bit of review about this book as you turn there. If you remember, James, the author of this book, was the earthly brother of Jesus, who after Jesus left earth became the pastor in the early church in Jerusalem. And throughout this book, we've seen that James does not pull back punches or mince words, does he? He says things as they are, strongly, passionately, and at times, we would say even harshly. As we came a few weeks ago to the end of chapter 3, he talked about the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And as we go into chapter 4 today, he's going to continue this contrast between the earthly and the heavenly. But he's going to go to the roots, and he's going to go straight for our hearts, and he's going to ask this question, do we love God, or do we love the world? Do we love God, or do we love the world? And what he's going to say, how he's going to say it, can seem quite harsh at times. But I believe with good reason. We have to understand, sometimes as we come to God's Word, sometimes God's Word encourages us. It lifts us up. Other times, it convicts us. It really tears us up. Both are necessary in our lives. Don't ignore this passage just because it seems too harsh for your liking. Just like we would allow a doctor to cause us some pain if it meant that it would eventually heal us. I pray that you would let God's Word do that today. We call it the sword of God's Word. Let it pain you today if necessary so that He can heal us, so that He can make us right. As we work through God's Word now, I, I want to pray, though, that God would be at work in each of our hearts as we look at this. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word and all of its uses in our life of convicting and encouraging and everything in between. We pray this morning that uh, we would feel both, that we would be convicted by things in our life that need to change, but that we would be encouraged by your incredible grace for us at the same time. We pray that that balance would be struck and that your spirit would be working in our hearts, in each of our hearts, 
to guide us more into your likeness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're wondering why I talked about war earlier, in chapter 4, a lot of the imagery James is going to use has to do with war. And that's because we're involved, like I said, in a cosmic war between God and the world. But this spiritual war takes place on a personal level in each of our lives. The first thing we're going to see in this chapter is that we are not only in a war, but we are constantly making alliances with one side or the other in this war, often going back and forth, flip-flopping, trying to play both sides. Here's how I put the first point, which we'll read about in just a second. The world becomes our natural ally when we give in to our selfish passions. When we give in to our natural and selfish passions or desires, we ally with the world. Let's see where I get this. We'll begin reading chapter 4, verse 1. He asks the question, What causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? Good question. (laughs) Right? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The issue of fights and quarrels is all too common in the church and always has been. You might say that's the first war that we're involved in. Fighting against one another. These words actually very literally mean physical fights and violence. Why? Why does this happen? James doesn't, though, want to just address the surface issue of fights. He wants to get to the root cause. So what causes this war amongst Christians? And he'll say it's a deeper war inside ourselves. Verse 1 again, What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the wars that are waging inside of us, the wars on the inside, cause the wars on the outside. Verse 1 in the message says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. Next time you wonder why Christians get involved in so many fights or divisions, remember this. Churches are made up of sinners. You know that? We're all sinners. And we make up the church. The church is made up of sinners. And in every single sinner, there is an inner war going on. Okay? So there's wars all over this room, in all of our hearts. In you, there is a war going on. Therefore, in you, there is the potential for disaster. That doesn't excuse it, but it does explain it. James says here that our passions are at war within us. Other versions say that our pleasures or our desires are at war. The Greek word is hedony, which simply means pleasure. Ever heard of a hedonist? That's where it comes from. We have all experienced this inner war at times that James talks about here. Obviously, in our lives, we both have good and bad pulls toward pleasure, right? Otherwise, the bad wouldn't have anything to fight against. But we experience the desire in our lives to be holy on the one hand. We want to be like God. On the other hand, we have this pull toward sin. And the the pull between holiness and sin clash all the time. 
the desire to do good for others, or the desire to do things only for ourselves, selfishly. Again, they battle. The desire to love and be loved properly, and the desire to maybe distance ourselves from other people. We have so many passions and desires that stand in direct opposition to each other in our lives. And we feel the clashes, the battles, the struggles, the fights all taking place in our lives. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that talks about our hearts being like a war zone. Right? In Romans 7, 22-24, Paul describes it this way, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And in 1 Peter, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from, here's the passions of the flesh again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. They wage war against our souls. So we all have these good and bad passions that are fighting. However, the passions that James talks about here are specifically sinful, self-indulgent. We know this from the next couple verses. Read with me, end of verse 1, where he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we see several different desires here, right? Passions in our lives. We desire things that we don't have currently, that we don't own. That's, we would call it jealousy or envy or covetousness. And that leads to these fights and quarrels, even physical violence. When we want things that other people have or have experienced, that's a selfish passion. Whether that's a home or a spouse, children, friends, a job or a certain salary. Maybe you envy people that are living out their dreams while you aren't. We are jealous for others' recognition or popularity, accolades that they get. These passions, they do spring up pretty naturally. All of us have experienced this, but they're still sinful. They're still jealousy. They're still envy. They're still coveting. And in these verses, James then points out two reasons why we have these unfulfilled passions in our lives, why we don't have them. First of all, we lack faith that God can fulfill our passions. In verse 2, he says in the second half, You do not have because you do not ask. Jesus had said, Ask and you shall receive. And James is reflecting that teaching here. When we don't trust God to take care of our desires, we lack faith that he can. Even though he promises to give us what we ask for. However, there's a caveat to that promise, and that's that we've got to ask with correct motives, right? Verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And that's the second reason we have unfulfilled desires. We lack correct motives. See, God has no desire 
to simply satisfy our selfish pleasures. Zero. He doesn't want to do that. Yes, God wants to bless us abundantly, but not in order to feed our sins. He wants to bless us, for example, with human love, love for other people, but not if we want to take that and twist it and maybe be sexually immoral with it. God wants to bless us financially, but not if we just want to buy stuff and spend it. God wants to make us healthy, but not if that's going to make us prideful or self-dependent on ourselves. He wants to bless us so that we might grow in dependence and thankfulness to him. And he wants to bless us so that we, in turn, might be a blessing to others. He doesn't want to feed our sin. Ask yourself, are there unfulfilled desires in your life? And look at these two reasons. Are they why they're unfulfilled? Maybe you have things you deeply desire. What are your motives for wanting those things? Are they pure or are they selfish? I think it's worth looking inside ourselves with these words. In James 4, or in verse 4, sorry, James's argument hits its harshest point. And really, this is the point of all these verses. He basically says that when we give in to our selfish desires, we become friends of the world. Now, don't be startled. I'm going to read this as I imagine James said it himself, okay? Be ready. Verse 4. You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoa. So when we give in to these selfish passions, James is saying we become friends. with We make ourselves friends of the world. Because of the wartime imagery in these verses, I took the liberty to call in an alliance. We become allies with the world. And I believe that correctly communicates some of the nuances of this friendship. But the first thing we have to do here is define what James means by the world. Because this is crucial. If we misunderstand this, we can end up with some really wrong conclusions in our lives. So what does he mean by the world? You might hear this verse and think, well, I live in the world. I, oh, so do all my friends and family members. Everyone around me lives in the world. I study in the world. I work in the world. I get paid in the world's money. I live in a house built on the world. I travel the world, I eat food, I wear clothes, I use technology, all made from the world's materials. Is that what it means to be a friend of the world? Because if so, I'm doomed. Maybe you think, do we need to become like the Amish? We need to maybe become like the homeless people or like our grandparents. Or maybe we need to go join a monastery or a convent and just cut ourselves off from the world altogether. I'd say no, no, no. 
That's not right at all. When the Bible talks about the world in a negative way, it refers to one particular aspect of the world. First of all, let's look at what the world is not. Okay, The world is not referring to the created earth or nature. When God created the world, he said that creation was good. He blessed the world. It also, secondly, it doesn't refer to economies or social structures like families or government or community. Okay, so get that out of your mind. It doesn't refer to that. Third, it does not refer to the people of the world, whom we are clearly commanded in Scripture to love. Or to love the people of the world. What James means by the world, then, is this. It's the fallen world's ways of thinking and acting. So the teachings, the philosophies, and activities that exalt humanity above God. Very simply, you might put it this way, that the world is the sinful system of hostility towards God. Sinful system of hostility towards God. If you don't think the world is hostile towards God, you haven't been paying attention. The word, we might hear the word worldliness, and that would be referring to the love of this part of the world. Loving the hostility towards God, the sinful system. Or as James would say here, the friendship with the world. That's worldliness. Now one thing to be clear on before we continue. Worldliness is not just some abstract idea out there in the world. Okay, When we look at the world, we see the results of worldliness. We feel the pull towards worldliness. But worldliness is not out there. This is important. It's in here. Know that? James, if you see here, he doesn't focus his critique on things out there. On the Maybe if he was writing it today, he didn't focus it on the media or the entertainment industry or philosophies taught in universities. He focuses on us on our own natural, sinful, and selfish passions as the root. This is where it all comes from, inside of us. Once again, continuing the picture of a war, we see the third war we wage. First of all, it's against others, then it's in ourselves, and then it's against God. When, we, when we're friends of the world, it says we make ourselves enemies of God. In verse 4 again, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There have been times in my life when two of my close friends have basically become enemies with one another. Has that ever happened to you before? One time, one guy stole another of my friend's girlfriend. I don't recommend that. Another time, one friend made some very serious and slanderous accusations against another. And in these times, when these two friends began fighting, most people around me ended up taking sides with one or the other. Felt one was in the right, one was in the wrong, so then we're going to join their side. I tried so hard to keep my friendship going with both sides. I didn't want to lose a friend because of someone else's quarrel. But it was nearly impossible to do so. When lines are drawn, it's hard to stay neutral. It really is. 
You might think that, as you hear this today, you can tow this line with God. You can be a friend of both the world and of God. Let me tell you, that is not nearly impossible. That's absolutely impossible. Why? Because you cannot be friends with something that diametrically opposes the other. It's impossible. And James says here, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God's. The world and God are not in some little relational kerfuffle. They're at war. Okay? Let me put it another way. Imagine if some country will say Iceland. Okay, declared war on Canada. I don't know why. Maybe they wanted more ice, so they came for ours. <laughs> so imagine this. Iceland declares war on Canada, and you, for whatever reason, decide that you want to stay in good relations with both sides. So you sign up for both militaries. <laughs> you can imagine how that would go over. What would happen when, say, Canada finds out that you're signed up for Iceland's military. You'd be arrested for treason. It wouldn't matter that you would say, okay, I'm a Canadian soldier too, though, because by siding with the enemy, you automatically opposed Canada. You cannot play both sides in a war. It's treason. You cannot make the world your ally and hope to stay an ally of God's. It's impossible. And you can't stay neutral either. There are no Switzerlands in heaven. Really, you've already given in to your selfish passions, so you've already taken one side. We sing this song in Sunday school. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir! But are we? This is why James is so harsh in this passage. Passage. Worldliness is a very serious issue. As we've read through James, the, given the amount of times that James has referred to his readers as my beloved brothers so far. He does that all over and over again. My beloved brothers. Listen to this. But his term of endearment stands out even starker than here. You adulterous people. This term has a feminine sense so that it literally means you adulteresses. Why would James call what we call worldly Christians adulteresses? Why would he do that? I would say that it's because we as the church are the future bride of Christ. You might say his fiancée. We're engaged to be married to Christ. And you can't be Christ's fiancé and be flirting with, cavorting with, or sleeping with the world. It's hard to tell exactly what James says in verse 5. If you read in the end of verse 4, it says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But I think this becomes clear what it means when we consider the context of calling out spiritual adultery. James is basically saying this, okay, follow with me. God has given us all a spirit inside of us. 
We are spirit with a body. Okay? He's given us a spirit, and he's jealous for our spirit's affections. Read again under that understanding. Or do you suppose that it's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Did you know that God is a jealous lover for you? You know that? That should do a couple of things for you. First of all, that should make you feel extremely loved. That the God of the universe is jealous for you. Do you get that? Second, it should make you want to love him back with everything you are and everything you do. When we don't, James would say we display our natural enmity towards him. So overall, what we looked at so far is pretty bad news. We're naturally consumed with ourselves. We naturally join the world side. And because of this, we're natural enemies of God. In a war, we're destined to lose. But, but, Here's the good news. Our hostility towards God does not need to define us. No, I put it this way. God becomes our gracious ally when we soberly humble ourselves before him. God becomes our ally when we soberly humble ourselves before him. We can't win this war without God. But with God we can, with him as our ally, when we humble ourselves before him. Think about this. Back to the treasonous example of betraying your country here on earth. Okay? If we betrayed our country on repeated occasion today, would you be shown grace? No. No way. We would never be shown grace if we repeatedly betrayed our country. But God is different. While God is entirely just, he's also exceedingly gracious. If you think James has been too harsh so far, hold on to these next five words. These words give us all the hope we have. In verse 6, first five words, but he gives more grace. In light of all that, but God gives more grace. Grace. God's favor on us. When we don't deserve it at all. We're his enemies. Why would he want to show grace to us? It's out of love. Out of love, we can't comprehend it's so huge. Notice here that the first action is God's. He gives the grace. And then we respond to the grace. How do we access this grace? How do we respond? By humbling ourselves. Continue in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again we see God standing in opposition. This time to the prideful. But he gives grace. He loves. He forgives. He saves. He pardons the humble. We need to ask, well, what does it mean to be humble? 
What does it mean to be humble before God? Well, to be properly humble means that we have an accurate view of both God, who he is, and ourselves. So we view God as just and holy and powerfully and justly opposing sin on earth. And we view ourselves as wretched sinners before him. An enemy of his. How do we get into this right viewpoint? What actions do we have to take? I think James tells us over the next few verses, which amounts to one of the most powerful calls to repentance in all of Scripture. God gives grace to the humble. That's the message of verse 6. Therefore, in verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. These verses have so much application. James is pouring it on. I can really only breeze through it today. For those of you who are in small groups, you'll delve deeper into these commands this week of application. But I, as we, we're going to read through them again, and as we read through these, I don't want to just read these application points and tell you what they mean. Okay? I want you to examine your own life, examine your hearts, see if God is prompting you to obey something from his word this morning. Look in the mirror of God's word. What do you look like? The first thing to do in order to be properly humble, it says, is to submit to God. Verse 7 at the beginning says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This means to put ourselves under God's rightful authority and to obey him. It's ag- the, word, the term that James uses here is actually a military term that means get back in your proper rank. Okay, it has that idea. Get back in your proper rank. Now, if in the world, if a private is out acting like a general, he's going to get in a lot of trouble. And if our lives, if we're out acting like God, we need to stop. Get back into rank. Obey him. That's what it means to submit to him. Don't call him your Lord if you're not going to obey what he tells you to do. Really, you could say that submitting to him is a form of surrendering to him in this war, surrendering to his authority. In the war between you and God, you've got to raise your white flag of surrender to him. You've got to give up your fight. Surrender your control to him. Give him control of your life. Surrender control of your passions and your desires. Surrender control of maybe your schedule your finances, your health, along with everything else. Surrendering it to him. When we do, we leave the ranks of the enemy and get back into rank in the Lord's army. Hand in hand with the order to submit to God is James' second command. Second half of verse 7, resist the devil... And he will flee from you. Imagine the scene, okay? That you're on this battlefield, surrounded by your fellow soldiers, fighting against God. 
Okay, imagine that scene. But the army you're with is not surrendering when you realize, I'm on the wrong side. I've got to join God's side. I need to surrender to him. They're not surrendering around you. So you have to surrender on your own. So you raise your flag, start walking over to the other side, hands in the air, I give up. What's going to happen behind you? Imagine your former commander watching you defect to the other side. You going to like that very much? What's he going to do? He's going to try to take you out right then and there. In this case, your former commander is the devil, Satan. And he is furious when people surrender to God humbling themselves before him. See, Satan's main objective for humanity is to build up pride in people so that they oppose God. He wants you thinking, just like Adam in the Garden of Eden and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that you can be like God. He wants that in you. He doesn't want you to humble yourself. So James's message here, I would say, that as you submit to God, watch your back. Because Satan's going to be gunning for you hard. The good news is, though, that when we resist him, he flees. You see that? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How does he, why does he flee? Because God's Spirit dwells in you. And you, because the God's Spirit dwells in you, you have greater power than the devil. Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Some of you just need a good old-fashioned resistance. (laughs) You're not putting up a fight. Resist the pull of pride. Resist the pull of worldliness. Resist the pull of making yourself God. Resist the devil. And he'll take off like a puppy with his tail between his legs. Verse 8 continues, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is where I'd say the analogy of a war doesn't go far enough. Because we are more than just allies of the world. We're friends with the world, as we saw earlier. And God, as we come to his side, wants us to be more than his allies. He wants us to be his friends. So we need to draw near to him. And that means to pursue an intimate relationship with him. Are you pursuing that? Are you drawing near to God on a regular basis? It's part of humbling yourself before him. And it's an incredible promise that if we draw near to God, since he'll draw near to us in return. That the God who flung stars into space wants you to be close to him. Wants you to love him. James then calls for Complete confession and repentance of sin. In verse, the second half of verse 8, it says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, 
your hearts be double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In order to draw near to God, I'd say, first of all, we have to get rid of our sin. God doesn't tolerate sin in his presence. So he says, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, referring to outward sinful actions. And then purify your hearts. Referring, of course, to to sinful thoughts or motives or beliefs, attitudes we have. Confession, we'd say, is admitting that you've sinned. Repentance is turning completely away from those sins. And we need both if we want to properly humble ourselves before God. We might need to closely examine what this means in many areas in our lives. What does this mean for your TV or movie watching habits? What does this mean for the clothes you wear? The words you say, the music you listen to, or the books you read, the stuff you buy, what does it say about those? The commands of verse 9 relate directly to this repentance of sin when he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. The NIV says here to grieve, mourn, and wail. The NASB says to be miserable. Why should we need to be miserable? Because of our sin. You say, well, Pastor Matt, sin's not that serious. Why would I I actually mourn over sin? I'd say, yes, actually, it is that serious. If we truly realize the disastrous gravity of our sins, we would be devastated. Instead, today's sins are treated lightly, even laughed about on TV or among our friends. Sin isn't funny. Do you find sin funny? You laugh along. In response to that, James would say, let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Let me ask you, do you know what it means to weep over your sin? Do you know what it means to be contrite or broken over your sin? Do you know how to honestly and humbly repent? Now these verses may make you uneasy. Because you think, wait a second, wait. This doesn't make sense. I thought that God brings us joy. Doesn't he bring us joy? I mean, that's what we just saw two weeks ago at Easter, that God changes all of our mourning and grieving to incredible joy. Right? Maybe ask, should we still weep over our sin if we've already been saved? Well, I believe that if we've been saved, our sin will break our hearts more and more more. As we increasingly are sanctified to understand the horror of sin in God's sight. It will break our hearts. I'd also say that mourning over sin is a neglected and necessary part of a Christian's life. However, 
you would be completely right to point out that salvation brings us much more joy than gloom. It does. That's a fact. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. See, it's okay to be miserable for a while because it doesn't last. Get that? It's okay to be miserable for a while because it doesn't last. It's like Good Friday. Standing at the cross, the sorrow is real and deep, but gloriously temporary. The sorrow over our sin gives way to celebration over our salvation. And in James, if we stop here in verse 9 and don't move on to verse 10, we miss the temporariness. Read with me in verse 10. He again finishes his commands, wrapping it up back up to humility, and says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? Exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. When we humble ourselves before God, he promises not to leave us down. He lifts us back up. See, mourning is part of humility, but it is not the end of humility. The end is exaltation. You might think humbling myself, maybe submitting or resisting, drawing near, repenting, mourning, these sound so difficult to do. Why would I want to humble myself? And I'd say to you that you've got to have the long look here. You've got to see the future. Yes, humbling may be hard in the short term, but in the long term, God himself will exalt you. I cannot promise whether or not this will be on earth. But God will exalt the humble in heaven, and that is a promise. You ask, well, how can God exalt people who seem to be such wretched sinners? How could he do that? I'd say it's because of all of what Jesus did for us. It's all because of Jesus. See, Jesus took our wretchedness, our worldliness, our pride, our enmity with God, and he put it on his own back. Took it to the cross, and he took God's just punishment for our treason. Let that sink in. He took our punishment for treason against God. By dying on the cross for us. And then three days later, he rose again, forever turning our grief into eternal joy. When we're humbling ourselves before God, it has to be at the foot of the cross and the empty grave. It has to be there. It's because the cross and the empty grave are how God conquered sin and Satan and death forever. It's how he did it. And they are the promise of our future exaltation. All because of God's grace. And they are what bring us peace with God. Instead of enmity with Him. We have been forgiven of damnable crimes. Yes, weep at the foot of the cross. And then rejoice in the fact that both the cross... And the grave are now empty. 
the fact that God will exalt us is possibly the most incredible aspect of his grace. We do not deserve to be exalted. In Romans 7, as Paul finishes talking about the war inside of us, we quoted some verses earlier, he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How does he end? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you come to the cross before and humbled yourself there? Have you let God take away all the worldliness that resides deep inside of us? Have you repented of your sins and submitted to God's authority over you? You can today. We'd love to help you do that. To wave, so to speak, your flag of surrender to God. Say, I give up. You own my heart. Take it. Love for you to come talk to me or to talk to a friend that brought you. Take James's commands to heart here. To humble yourself before the Lord. And he will exalt. Well, there's one final and short point as we conclude this passage from the last couple verses. Put it this way. That we display our alliance with God when we humbly love each other. Our alliance or our friendship with God is shown when we love others with humility. We've come full circle. You remember how James started today with fights and quarrels amongst us? He addressed that issue by talking about the root issue of the wars inside and the war against God. Now he returns to that, to the wars against each other, and says that if we're at peace with God, this will be shown by being at peace with our fellow man. Read with me in verse 11. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now these verses can be a bit confusing, I admit. I'll sum them up quickly. I hope you try to follow along with me. Starting in verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Speaking evil literally means to slander someone else here. So why shouldn't we speak evil against others? Because the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now how do those things make sense? How, do they, how does speaking against someone else equal speaking against God's law? Well, if you remember, we saw earlier in James chapter 2, how does the law summed up? The entire law is summed up by loving our neighbor as ourself. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. So you cannot love your neighbor and slander them at the same time. See how that's breaking the law? So slander equals breaking the heart of the law. Thus, when you break the heart of the law, you speak evil against it, is what James is saying. And when we break the law like this, we set ourselves over the law like a judge. He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And why is this a problem? Because in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you 
to judge your neighbor. Do you follow his logic? Basically, if we don't love one another, we've effectually put ourselves in God's place. Get that? If we judge others and speak evil about them, we're pretending to be God. Which goes right back to the pride and hostility against him. Worldliness. If we've been humbled before God, taking his place should be the furthest thing from our minds. So be careful what you say about others. Could be pretending to be God. Now, after hearing a sermon like this that focuses so much on our sins, you might be tempted to ignore what God is saying to you and think only of other people's problems. I know I felt that temptation. Don't. God is their judge. You aren't. God can save them or destroy them. You cannot. That's what it says. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Look inside yourself. Don't look outwardly, look inwardly. What's going on in your heart? In view of God's great grace to you, You are called to love others no matter how bad they are to you. No matter how much they might want to fight you. No matter how much they might hate you. Don't give in to your selfish passions and fight back. After all, God didn't fight back against you. He laid his life down. Dying for you. And that should inspire us to live peacefully with others in love. Just like Jesus did for us. Talked a lot about war today. I want you to remember, though, as we end, that while these wars still rage in our hearts, and while we still wage war against others, that will happen, and we need to be fighting against the devil. Technically, the war against God is over. Yes, the world still rages against him, opposes him, fights him, hates his ways, and we do too. But the war is already won. You know that? The war is already won. The tide has been stemmed. The momentum has shifted. The devil is doomed. The victory, I'd say, was purchased at the cross. It was accomplished at the resurrection. And it will be completed with the day that Christ returns. Oh, victory in Jesus. We've got to stop fighting for the losing side. God has already won the war. Once we realize that and surrender our ill-fated battles to him, his peace comes Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that peace that God has won through the death of his Son. Don't you want your wars with God to cease? Don't you want to cease fire? 
Don't you want to be on the winning side? Let us run to him today, giving up our pride, throwing down our weapons. Let us surrender all we are to God, to the God who has graciously given us his victory. As 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we are overwhelmed by it. When we least deserve it, when we are fighting against your cause, fighting against your kingdom, you came and sacrificed yourself for us, laying your body down. So we pray today that we would surrender to you, that we would submit to you, that we would resist the devil, that we would draw near to you, that we would cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, that we would weep over our sin. And we trust you that one day you'll exalt us, all because of your grace shown us in Jesus. We thank you for this. Surrender to you. In Jesus' name.